0: morning again, everybody. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are just um, open. My heart this morning, Lord, is just overwhelmed with your love. Lord, just studying this week and, and especially the last few days that just understanding that, that your love is so deep, that it's, it's truly beyond our knowing at, at, at a point. And as we look at that this morning, Lord, we pray that you would open your word to us, that you would bring it alive in our hearts, Lord, that more than that, that as we look at uh, our hearts being his home, that that would truly be the case for each of us. So we yield to the working of your Holy Spirit pray that you would accomplish that which you desire to accomplish in each of our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, this letter that the apostle Paul wrote from jail in Rome to a church that he had planted in Asia Minor, uh, a church in in a town called Ephesus. It was actually a large city, a quarter million plus people, uh, one of the largest in the empire, and Uh, a a sizable church had sprung up, probably several or or a number of house churches that had come together during that time. That's how the church met. Uh, and, And in this letter, Paul has certain things that he wants to express to the Ephesian church, through which we benefit by way of application in our lives. The first three chapters that we've been looking at are what it is to be in Christ. He uses that term over and over again. In chapter 1, we looked at the blessings of being in Christ, that we have this inheritance, that God has set us apart, that we have a life now that is worth living in Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 17... Uh, Paul prays for the first time. We're gonna look at Paul's prayer at the end of chapter three here this morning, but he prays also in in chapter one. And what he prays there is that the the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's my prayer for us this morning, folks. And it's not an intellectual thing that God wants to accomplish. Yes, I love to study. I, I love packing my brain with facts and all of that. But truly, this is something that is brought about by God revealing himself to us as we open ourselves to the working of the Holy Spirit, that it's his witness in us. When he says, give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that's still his will. It wasn't just for the church at Ephesus. It's for the church, the the capital C church. So we looked at that in chapter one. In chapter two, we looked at what it is to be reconciled in Christ, again, that term. Uh, we see in, in chapter one that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we literally passed from death to life. And that, that it's the work of God in, in our lives that accomplishes that. As we focus on the finished work of Jesus at the cross, that we can have life, seeing that we were born spiritually dead and that it's his will that none would perish but that all would come to have this life. So we, we see that that we have life in Christ. We uh, have salvation. We looked at that again in chapter two where he talks about that, that you were saved by grace through faith. That salvation comes not as a result of things that we did, but as a result of the work that God has already done in Christ on our behalves. And then he goes on to say that It's not that works aren't important. They're just not necessary for salvation. You're saved unto good works. But it's not you producing. It's not human sweat that accomplishes it. It's the work of God in us. He says, you are my workmanship now. You are my expression. I want to express myself in you and through you. We saw in chapter two also that he's broken down the wall of separation. We've looked at that and and as we... Just glance at that this morning. We see in in chapter 2, verse 14, that he says that Jesus himself is our peace. Jesus told his disciples, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, but it's my peace. That, That peace isn't a doctrine. It's found in a person. It's found found in the person of Christ. And we see that in that, the church is to be a beacon of the finished work of Christ. He wills that there not be any division among us. That's what bringing that wall of separation down is about. That there wouldn't be a national division in the body of Christ. There wouldn't be a social, rich, poor type of division. There wouldn't be racial divisions. And my heart is burdened at times because how I wish that there wouldn't be divisions even within the body of Christ, and and there are. And it's painful to see at times. So as we move through here and look at chapter three, how it came about for us that we Gentiles, anybody that's not Jewish, are added to Christ, that how we come to be in Christ. Again, it's all about being in Christ in these first three chapters. And in verse one, Paul begins to pray. We've looked at that. And then in verses 2 through 13, he gives one great big long sentence in the original. It's separated into several sentences in the, in English, but it, it's a parenthesis before he actually gets with the prayer that we're going to look at this morning. In verse 13, he ends that section. We ended last week with uh, verse 13. He says, therefore, on account of everything I've been saying up until now, therefore, I ask that you don't lose heart at my tribulations, my troubles, that's what that means, for you, which is your glory. And it was because Paul knew that God's plan was not, it was unstoppable with him being in prison. Uh, he, he says, therefore, in verse 13, he says, therefore, I've been laying out for you this mystery of Christ. And again, he says it in chapter 3, that it's by divine revelation. It's not by memorizing facts and figures, as good as that can be. But he says there in chapter three that the Gentiles are now equal, that you and I are equal with any other living person, that the gospel is to, is, is to all men. He says that we're fellow heirs, we're of the same body. Uh, He says that we have full access to all that God has to offer in, in chapter three. And last week we looked at the unsearchable riches of Christ, how his wealth is immeasurable. The the spiritual wealth that we inherit, that we get as part of the package, part of the deal. We also looked at the manifold wisdom of God. And and as we look at that, we understand that in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, very famous verse that the apostle Paul says there that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. That The the manifold wisdom of God is at work in our lives, even when we're, and especially when we're not aware of it. That he's doing things, he's drawing all things into himself. So as we looked at that last week, we looked at Paul's imprisonment. Uh, He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. Uh, We saw that, we looked at Acts 16, where we saw that if God didn't want Paul to be in prison, he wouldn't be. We saw where he and Silas had been set free miraculously in the Philippian jail. Uh, we also came to look at and to understand that it wasn't, Paul's life wasn't interrupted. It wasn't an interruption to God's plan. It was God's plan. That his plan was that Paul would end up chained to a Roman guard in Rome under house arrest. And through that, even though Paul always wanted to be with people, that he would be compelled to reach out to the churches that he had uh, on his heart, on his mind, and write letters. Those became a sizable chunk of the New Testament that we have. So as we look at verses 14 through 21 this morning, and we finish this chapter, I'm going to read through the whole section, and then we'll come back and take a look at it. Verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's a mouthful, but that's Paul's prayer. His he, he's, he's wrapping up the first half of this. As we've looked at, this first half of this letter is you in Christ, what it is to be in Christ. And what he's going to do now in this prayer, he's he's praying that the people would be equipped to actually be able to walk out what it means to have Christ in you. Uh, That's where he's going in this prayer. He's praying uh, for the people. And we'll see that there's a progression in this prayer that's just marvelous to look at, that he's praying that the people would grab a hold of the, the critical principles that are involved with understanding what the transaction is, that we walk through our lives with Christ in us, expressing himself through us. So because God's eternal purposes in this mystery have now been revealed, that's where we go when we look at verse 14. And remember, he said, therefore, in 13, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. I have to believe by just studying the apostle Paul's life in all of the, the different letters that he wrote and in the book of Acts and, and on, uh, that when he says this, it's not an idiom. It's not a, he's not, I don't think he's using a figure of speech here. I think that when he says, for this reason, I bow my knees, that he bowed his knees. Uh, I believe that the, just the sincerity in his heart and, and the, the, that he unashamedly would just you got to remember, he's chained to a Roman guard. He's shackled to this guy. And I picture as Paul is getting to this place and he's got these things going through his mind and he's expressing them uh, in this leather, letter that uh, I picture him saying, hey, friend, could you just maybe like adjust a little bit because I need to get down on my knees now. and And, and he pulls this guy down with him. I would imagine that he probably prayed in Greek. We're told in the book of Acts, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, that when Paul was arrested there in Jerusalem, that he spoke in Greek to the Romans and he spoke in Hebrew to the Jews. And here he is with this Roman guy. So I would think that he would want this guy to understand what he's praying for. We know that many of the people in the Praetorian Guard came to know Christ through Paul, through being chained to this guy that was relentless with the gospel in a good way. So, What he says here is he's saying, it's interesting because he bows as a son. He sees a family. That's what's in his mind. We've talked about being added to the family of God. And that as Paul is going through this, he's getting ready to, he's preparing to pray. He's not looking at Jews and Gentiles anymore. We've covered that. That is out of the way. That wall has been torn down. He's looking at one whole family now. He's looking at the body of Christ. So in bowing as a son, we got to understand that that Paul understands the implication of what Christ had done for him personally, that as he bows, that there's an attitude of humility and also intensity, uh, that he from just going back, looking at his life from back when he first was knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus, and, and he heard that voice coming from heaven that said, Saul, that was his name before his conversion, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And for him to come to the full realization that he had been persecuting his own Jewish Messiah at that point. To see that he had gone from that to now being a messenger of the grace of God. Being entrusted by God to take this gospel to the world at that point. So, and what I also cover, when we talk about bowing bowing our knees, that's a wonderful posture in prayer. It's not... Like the posture in prayer, it, it, it's not a superior posture. I think that it's important at times I pray on my knees. Very often though, I pray as I go through the day. I pray, I pray that I would become prayerful to the point where I'm not sure. I haven't really thought about when I've stopped praying and I'm just going along. Uh, because the Bible says to pray without ceasing, to, to understand that That's our communion with the Lord. It's not just going down the list. Yes, petitions are important, gang. It's very important that we lift ourselves and lift our concerns and all of that to the Lord. And there's a lot of that going on and that's good. He wants to hear that. And yet prayer essentially is communion with God. Because he is in this invisible realm and we live in this invisible kingdom, it's not a physical kingdom, but it is a kingdom that the way that we stay linked and connected to our King is in prayer. Is it always on our knees? No. For me, it's not often on my knees. Very often I I can't be on my knees when I'm in my car or going down the road or in conversation with someone, perhaps praying as I'm talking. But it is important that in those times, in those intimate, intimate times, there are times where I'll be in my office, there's no one around. And I'll just slip out of my chair and onto my knees and just begin to pour it out and to enjoy the love of God. Or or if I'm deeply burdened about something, I have some deep burdens lately that I'll just pour them out to the Lord and, and just say, here it is. Please, Lord, instruct me, give me wisdom, give me strength, give me what I need to get through whatever I'm facing. So it's an attitude being on our knees. is It's truly an attitude of humility. It's also an attitude of intensity. So one of the things, there's a guy by the name of Alan Redpath. He was a guy that uh, wrote a lot of commentaries, very well-known theologian type guy. Uh, and somebody asked him once, what was the secret of his success in ministry? And his answer was simple. He said, bent knees, broken heart, wet eyes. Everything, guys, is accomplished in that place. You can't overemphasize the importance of prayer. And and again, to just simply commune with the Lord, to know that it's his Holy Spirit dwelling within that gives us insight, that gives us understanding, that gives us answers when we're seeking. The Bible says that if you lack wisdom, ask that God will give it liberally without reproach, which means criticism. He's not going to criticize you but that he wants to have that communion with us. When we look at this, he says, I bow my knees before the father. Understand, I'm gonna look at what fatherhood is. Now, I had a lot of trouble as a young Christian understanding the father heart of God. I came from a, a, a messed up kind of broken family and you know, my stepfather was anything but a good example. And I remember as a young believer, I would I would look at this and, and read about the Father aspect of who God is. And and I struggled with that. And and it wasn't until I began to realize the great love that God had given me for my own children, that I began to understand the depth of love, just a a little bit of the depth of love that God has for us. Uh, Fatherhood, interesting, we're created in God's image and, and in his likeness. And and fatherhood is not something that originated with man; it's something that originated with God that because he has the capacity for a relationship, we have the capacity for a relationship. Uh, Jesus back in eternity past the, the son said to the Father, "Send me that that Father, Son, Holy Spirit." Trinity, the triune God has existed for all eternity. And so when we look at fatherhood, it's something that God projects into humanity. It's not something that originates with us. It's also important to understand that God is not just intellectual. Yes, I love intellectual pursuits. I'm not that great at it, but I love to intellectualize. I love talks with, I have some friends that I visit with uh, on a, a regular basis, that we, we boy, we can just get into hours fly by, and we don't even know. Uh, and, and yet, I love that. And, and also, there's an aspect, though, uh, to who God is, that he's not just intellectual. He's also visceral. Visceral means that he feels, and he feels perfectly. He feels intensely. And that because he feels deeply, we have the capacity to feel deeply. The emotional connections that we have with one another are born in a perfect sense in God himself. But they've been corrupted by the fall. They've been corrupted by that Adamic nature that we inherit, that, that nature that we have when we come into this world That that is expressed it, through the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Everything falls into that. So our emotions have been corrupted in that sense that we experience what it is to, to be betrayed. We experience failed relationships. We, we experience destroyed trust. That's commonplace. The emotions that go with that are intense. They're powerful. Grief, anger, sorrow, pain, pain. It wasn't God's intended result for that to be so with man. And and in Revelation chapter 21, we see that God will one day set things right. Uh, He says in God, in Revelation 21, 4, he says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There'll be no more pain and for the former things that fall in expression of our emotions, have passed away. This is visceral pain. But God is the God of restoration. I know that many of us pack around wounds uh, from from the kinds of things that I'm talking about here. And that God is in the business of restoring. He is in the business of setting that thing that was wrong, setting it right. So as we look at the fatherhood of God, uh, I, I was... And just going through some stuff in, in my life these days, I, I was looking in Deuteronomy chapter one and I saw something there that, that just clearly relates, even though the, new, the Old Testament doesn't go heavily into the father aspect of who God is. Jesus scandalized people when he prayed. He'd look up towards heaven with his eyes open and say, dad, and yet that wasn't so in the old covenant. But here in Deuteronomy chapter one, verses 30 and 31, we read this. It says, the Lord, your God who goes before you, he'll fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt, before your eyes and in the wilderness where, listen to this, you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. So even back then, as Moses writes to this, as he relates the observation of God and his work back when he pulled the children of Israel out of Egypt, he's saying that, God carried you. He he bore your burdens. He carried you as a a father would carry his son. Verse 16, he says that he would grant you. Now he's asking God to give us something. He says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. So as as Paul prays, this is the first part of his request. Now I want you to catch, guys, this is not a bunch of... Uh, disconnected thoughts as he's praying. There is something that goes on here. There's a progression here that paints a picture for you and I. And that would have painted a clear picture for the people in Ephesus that he was writing to. And I don't want to miss it. Uh, he's, he uses the word that. In verse 16, he says, that you may be strengthened with might. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Verse 18, that you come to comprehend his love verse 19, that you're filled with all the fullness of God. They're not separate thoughts. Each one builds upon the last. He's saying, I'm asking God the Father to give you, to grant you something. He's He's praying for the inner man, not just the outer man. And he's praying according to his riches, not from his riches, but according to his riches. There's a difference. I remember when Stacy and I were in uh, Northern Thailand, I, I was invited once to go preach at a church in, in Myanmar, Burma. And pardon me. So I went and I did that and we went to lunch afterwards. I've shared this, I think maybe before, but uh, there, just something really struck me about this. We went to lunch at some people's house. And the custom in their culture is that you, you don't just feed somebody uh, from your food supply. In other words, if I went and they were feeding us from their food supply, they'd say, here's a sandwich. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but in their culture, we got over there. And these are poor people. These are people that it's about survival. And yet we got over there and they, they filled the table with plates of food and then they ran out of room and the plates of food went up onto the counter next to the table and this whole thing was spread out before us. And we questioned uh, our friend who, who knew them afterwards and he said, that's their custom. They had all of the food that they have on the table because they're feeding you according to the amount of food that they have, not from the amount of food that they have. Uh, just an interesting similarity, I was reminded of that as I was looking at this that that what god does it 's like say you need a quarter it 's as though he says well here 's a million dollars he 's giving us from his richness from the riches of his glory uh, he, he talks about the inner man here he says uh, that you 'd be strengthened with might literally the word strengthen means inner strength it 's not talking about physical strength it 's not talking about building muscles is talking about inner character, inner strength, and that that he's going to do this with might. The word might there is power. And that is, it's the same word that we use uh, for the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the word dunamis. We looked at that recently in a Bible study, just looking at the fact that it's a dynamic that he puts into our hearts. He's saying, God wants to work on the inner man, the inner woman. of course, when we talk about man in the Bible, we're talking about, it's a term for humanity. It means men and women alike. Uh, But he says, he's talking about the Holy Spirit's working in our hearts that he would strengthen us with power. Interesting, we tend to emphasize the outer man in our culture. We We spend a lot of money and a lot of time dressing up this (laughs) <laughs> this tent, <laughs> uh, but God looks upon uh, and, and works within the inner man. Uh, again, we can get so caught up in the externals that we ignore the internals. Jesus talked to the the religious leaders of his day. He he called them whitewashed tombs. He said, "You y- y- cleanse the outside of the cup." But inside, you're full of dead men's bones. He was talking about the inner man versus the outer man. And what, and Paul, in his epistles, he never uh, prays for outward prosperity for people when he's praying. He is always praying. He's always concerned with the inner man. That is what God's will is for us, folks, that we get away from all of the outer adornments. not that that's bad but that we focus on the on the heart, that we focus on the, the matters, the issues of the heart. In Second Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Again, God's will, uh, clearly from his word, that he is far more concerned with what he wants to do in our heart than what we look like in a particular moment. Praise God, I mean, this gravity's taken hold, guys. Verse seventeen, uh, the first part, he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is—I don't think this is a reference to him when he says that he'll dwell in your hearts. He's not talking about being born again. This is a letter that's written to believers. So when he's talking about that, uh, it's not—he's not talking about an issue of salvation here. But what he's talking about, the Greek word for dwell is an interesting word. It's kataoikos, and what it means is to settle down and to be at home. Interesting. What he's saying is that Christ should be able to, when it comes to the inner man, that he should be able to settle in there. When we, I was thinking about this, it's like, there've been many times over my life that that perhaps someone would show up as I'm on my way out to the door to, to run some errands or whatever, and I'll say, hey, make yourself at home. I'll be back in a little bit. We really don't mean that. I mean, what would it be like if somebody, it's like you walk back in, you've gone to the grocery store or whatever, you walk back in, it's like, the couch was over there. What are you doing with my slippers on? I mean, you know, when we say that, it's a polite thing, and it's the right thing to say and all, but if somebody truly made themselves at home, that would be a little bit different. (laughs) I was looking at this. The old line applies here. Guests and fish smell after three days uh, i was reading an article about this and here's a quote that i came across he says here's a fix we recently picked up from a very savvy pal only let guests stay with you for three days no more and make this rule very well known to all your friends and family so that there are no hurt feelings or surprises why three days because based on our highly scientific research hosting friends every weekend for two months straight, There is, this is the exact amount of time that allows you to be an impeccable host without losing your mind. I like that. Essentially, the point is, is that we don't like to surrender control of our lives to another. Uh, and, and we build walls about that, guys. I don't like it when somebody stays too long. Neither do you. Be honest about it. But the question here is, when we relate this to spiritual things, is do you want Jesus to settle in and be at home in your heart? It's a good question, and it's one that requires an honest answer because there are times where we don't. We are just automatically, I don't know if I want to go that far. Because we know that he's going to likely come in and move some things around. He's going to do some cleaning He's going to probably get into our space. I mean, think about it. It, When when we allow him to come in and to rule and reign in our hearts, there are times where he says, you know, I don't think you should do that. Watching television the other night, my wife said, I don't think that this is something to watch. And it wasn't something that was horrible or anything weird, but it was just like, there was just a consciousness of the Holy Spirit's work. and, and, And I turned it off and, The point is, is that we get uncomfortable when we talk about sharing our lives. And yet, I want to encourage you, don't be afraid of that with him. Number one, he's a perfect gentleman. It's in his love that he'll address things in your life. Uh, Don't be afraid, embrace him. Allow him to come in and make your heart his home. Allow them to settle down in your heart. Think about this. Again, Paul, he's sitting here. He's chained to this Roman guard and he's just got a burden for the Ephesians. He wants to see them strengthened. He wants to see this inner strength built up so that there's an outer expression in their lives. He wants to impart lasting fruit to them. And so now as he's praying for them, he prays for them to see see and to apply the how uh, as far as what it is to be uh in christ but now christ in you how does that be how is that expressed he's going through in this prayer and he's praying for them to be equipped that christ would be expressed that christ in you would be worked out in their lives he's praying for them to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man we saw that and he's praying that in that strengthening he prays let christ dwell with you literally let him settle down let him be at home in their hearts Uh, the point in all of this is don't treat Jesus like a three-day guest. That's the temptation at times. I'm just being straight up with you. Don't treat him that way. Allow him to rule and reign in your heart. I often pray that we would yield to his working in our hearts. I prayed that this morning as we're beginning the services. and It's just that we would allow him to be expressed in our lives. Don't run from him on this. Embrace him. He says in verse 17, concluding verse 17, he says that you being rooted and grounded in love. The word rooted here, it's a natural picture that he draws. It's that which holds up the tree. He's talking about this strength. He's talking about being strengthened, that you'd be rooted in him. The word grounded is a construction term. It relates to laying a foundation. So what he's saying is that you having a strong foundation rooted in the love of Jesus. That's the point that he's making here. Verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend, which means to lay hold of all with all the saints, with everybody else in the body of Christ, what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ. I I came across a quote that I think is is appropriate in this. When we look at So what does he mean when he's saying lay hold of with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height? He's talking about the love of God. He's talking about us understanding that the love of God is active in our lives. uh, That it's wide enough to include every person. It's long enough to last through all eternity. That it's deep enough to reach the worst sinner. And it's high enough to take us to heaven. Isn't that good? He says, here's what's going to happen. As as you yield to this working of the Holy Spirit, this is about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, guys. He says, as you yield to the working of the Holy Spirit, there's a strengthening that goes on inside of you, in your heart. As you allow him to settle in, to be at home in your heart, and you allow the roots of faith to go down in your life, strengthening you at the foundation. Because you can only go as high as your foundation goes deep. You can never lead anyone else further than where you're at. He says, in that, you're now able to begin to comprehend, as do all who truly belong to him, the width and length and depth and height of God's love for you. You're never going to understand it perfectly on this side of heaven. It's an infinite love. It's a love that I want all of it that I can get. The love of God being poured out I want to receive his love. I want to receive his forgiveness. I don't want to hang on to my sin. I want to to turn from that. I want to embrace Jesus. I want to recognize the work that he did on that cross was for me, for you. Once that happens, the next thing we see in this progression is this. He says, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. When he says this, it's literally this is how it, it, it is worked out literally. He says to know experientially because that word uh, gnosko means experiential knowledge. To know experientially the love of Christ which surpasses experiential knowledge. What? I mean, that sounds like it contradicts it. It really doesn't. What he's saying is that this love might be a reality in your life and not just a religious concept. We can talk about the love of God all day long. We can talk with one another about the theological aspects of God's love poured out. Paul's point in this is, and that's fine, but it needs to make that transition, that transition from my head to my heart. It needs to be, he needs to work that love in me so that it can work its way out of me in my dealings with others, with all the saints. got to understand something about grace. It's a function of God's love. And when we're talking about grace, unmerited favor, God's unmerited favor towards you and I, that that is a function of his love. He loves us because he chooses to love us, not because we're all that and more and worthy somehow of his love because we know that there's none worthy. You truly don't deserve it. Stop trying to earn it we can very subtly fall into sort of a works trip in our minds that we're trying to kind of earn God's love. We're trying to earn points with dad. And he says, no, 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 that will, it will snare you. It will, it will trip you up. You honestly don't have to clean your house before inviting him to settle in. That's the point. It's about grace. It's about him loving you because he chooses to. It's not because you got your house cleaned up. How many times I've talked to somebody over the years that says, well, you know, once I get my life together, then I'll give it to God. And it's like, no, that totally defeats the point. You will never get your life together to the point where it's acceptable to God on that basis. Our lives are acceptable to God based on the work of Christ on our behalfs at the cross And when he rose from the dead, it was God's sign. It was his symbol that he had accepted that, uh, that his sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ was acceptable to the father. That's why death couldn't hold him. None of us could go that route. And yet by simple faith in the work that he did on my behalf, I can experience this love of God. I can experience this this grace of God at work, at home, at home. In my heart. You gotta understand, He is infinite in every conceivable way. We're finite, we are finite beings. You can't quantify it, you can't measure it. There is in Christ an ocean of love. That's what he's talking about that it's the, that we could see that the love of God that we understand it experientially but we can only understand it experientially to a point because as I walk in that as I understand his love more and more I realize that there's way more love available to me than I will ever be able to lay hold of. That's great news. There's an ocean of love in store. I can't out-sin his love. I can't outmaneuver his love. I can reject his love. And and that's a different story. I'll talk about that in a few minutes as we wrap up. But the point here is, is turn it all off. Enjoy the love of God being poured out for you. Just enjoy it. Uh, The man that discipled me for many years, he would just say, John, do you want it? You want to have an enjoyable walk with the Lord? It doesn't have to be hard. Yeah, it's hard at times. Just enjoy the love of God. Just enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Just enjoy the fact that Jesus loves you to the point where it's not that he is forcing his way to come in and settle down in your heart. He wants to. He wants fellowship with us. That's part of the restoration that comes about that was broken in the fall. Verse 19, uh, finishing up, he says, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This love is the standard with which God measures. He's not, he doesn't measure, Uh, you know, I, when I came out of Bible school, I, I, (laughs) they would often say, you know, be careful guys when you're getting a Christian education here because knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, love builds up and edifice is a building. So, and they would warn us about that. And when I came out of Bible school, I kind of, I was fairly young in the Lord and, it was kind of boisterous and in my 20s. And, and and I remember thinking about all of that and thinking, well, you know, I'm not going to let that happen to me. And I realized that it had already taken root in my life, the pride that comes with knowledge. Because knowledge puffs up. It, it, you can get prideful about it. I looked at Christian maturity for a, a few years early on as being a measure of how much you know. Uh, I see people that know a lot that are very immature. And, and, and it's not about how much we know, guys. We all are in process. We are, all are in this place where we want to know more. We want to know him more. We want to experience him more. We want to understand his word better. We want to understand the, the, the nuances and the subtleties and all of that. But maturity as a believer is not how much you know. It's how much you love. Paul says here, the the measuring stick, the way that God looks at it, the way that he measures is love. When he says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, it's in direct relationship to the love of God being poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So, as you yield to the Holy Spirit's strengthening, as he grants power to your inner man, from his immeasurable riches, not according, but he he grants it from, that you allow him to be more than a three-day guest in your heart, to not just be welcomed, but wanted. I want him in my life. I want him working. I want him conforming me to the image of his son. I want that power in my life. I want his presence in my life. I don't want to be alone. We want them to settle in at home and to have free reign in your heart, in my heart. The result will be that you're strengthening your foundation by allowing roots to go down, deepening your faith, leading to your comprehension of God's love for you growing to the point that you can't fully grasp it anymore. You just don't, you know it's there. You know that it's in such a bountiful supply that you you just can't grasp. It's beyond your knowledge. As you do that, you begin to realize it's okay to let go. And as you let go, you allow this experiential, internal reality to be in step with all that Christ has done in your life, all that he's doing in your life, and all that he has yet to do. That's what it is to have Christ in you. My heart, his home. There's a wonderful progression in this prayer of Paul that that he's he's just painting this beautiful picture of what it is for that to be the case. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, <laughs> stop there. We apply this externally. I have many times in my life, wow, I got this new car. That car is exceedingly abundantly above all I asked or thought. And, and or I got the wow! Did you see the size of the Christmas bonus? That's exceedingly abundant, you know. You and we can do that, and that's fine. God blesses us, and it's He's worthy of our, our our recognition that it's Him doing the blessing. However, Paul's application here is about an internal work of strengthening us, of changing us from within. That's what he means when he's talking about this. When he when he says that. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. It's about an internal thing, not an external thing. Good as those are. He claims the territory of our inner man or woman. He claims that for himself. He's getting a hold of our motives. He's getting a hold of our attitudes. He's getting a hold of our secret thoughts. He's getting a hold of our hearts. We're all in the process of being transformed and cleansed as part of the work that Christ is doing in us. That's Paul's point. That's the context of this prayer. It's a wonderful, beautiful prayer. He says, finishing verse 20, he says, according to the power that works within us. He's talking about, again, the power of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit dwells within, as he takes and he identifies things in my life, and sometimes he has to pry my fingers off of things, in order, because he knows what's best for me. He knows the work that he wants to do. He has an agenda for my life that is tailored for me. That's why I warn you guys sometimes, don't think that you know God's agenda for the person next to you. <laughs> and if it's your spouse, really don't do that because that's a recipe for uh, some stress. But the point is, is that he knows what he wants to do in me. And the question is, 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 am I allowing him to settle down and be at home in my heart to the point where, number one, he has my attention, and number two, I'm willing to apply that to my life because I want to grow in my relationship with him. This is a progressive thing. It's not like he arrives and it's all done. He's growing us. He's teaching us. He's helping us to understand that as we increase in love, that we're maturing. Yeah, we want to increase in knowledge, but that really is lower than how well do we love. He says in verse 21, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I like the way that's rendered in the King James. He says throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So Paul finishes his prayer here. He opens his eyes, and there on his knees, he's chained to a Roman guard. This is what it is for my heart to be his home. For Christians, this is an ongoing process that Jesus invades more and more territory in our hearts. In in concluding this section of Ephesians, it's important that we understand that, yes, we need to understand who we are in Christ, because unless we understand who we are in Christ... It's very hard to walk out and to express what it is to have Christ in us. And Paul's been setting the table here in this prayer. When he goes into chapter four, he's, it's going to start with another therefore that, look, based on the things I've been talking about, this is what our lives look like. I'm looking forward to us getting into that together and working through it. But it's important to understand something. Another aspect about grace, and I've been scratching my head about this for a couple of days, but I, and I think it really it, it fits. It's important to understand the grace of God in our lives because it is the more demanding relationship. Now, before you throw rotten, well, the church is empty, so you can't throw things at me. But it is the more demanding relationship. I want you to to look at the difference here. The grace of God says, yep, you blow it. He stands you up. He cleans you off. And he says, get it figured out and get back at it. I'll empower you. It's his power at work in our lives. We've been looking at that this morning. Here's what the law of God says. Yep, you blew it, you're dead. Give it up. You're powerless. So the grace of God at work in our lives is the more demanding relationship because God's grace is poured out. As I blow it, as I as I goof up, as I say things or do things or think things, he's right there. The conviction of his spirit comes in. I, I give it to him. I get right and I move forward with him and I allow the love of God to rule and reign in my heart. That is great news, guys. This relationship is new every morning. And that's this is why. If you don't know Christ this morning, you know, I I look at this. This is Again, this is a letter that Paul wrote to believers, the Apostle Paul. And yet he was always, as I mentioned, these guys that were chained to him, changing a guard every six hours, he'd have four of them a day, that, that he would just begin to pour out the gospel and pour out the love of God. And as he would do that, he would express to them, what all this, where this all comes about, how it came about that we can actually have peace with God. The Bible talks about two things. It talks about the peace of God. That's part of the fruit of his Holy Spirit as he dwells in us, the work of the Holy Spirit that we've been looking at here this morning. But you can't have the peace of God until you have peace with God. And to have peace with God there needs to be a transaction in your life you may have heard or been to Sunday school as a kid or whatever and you may understand that that Jesus died on the cross and and yeah that's a good thing to understand in our heads but again it's got to sink to our hearts to have any real meaning any importance in our lives and when Jesus went to that cross when he died and took the wrath of God for all of my sins sins simply being anything that separates me from God Thoughts, words, and deeds. That Jesus wore that for me. That he went to that cross for me. It's personal. Having done that, when he rose from the dead, he rose from the dead to give power to anyone who would believe. The power we're talking about here, gang. If you've never transacted with him on the basis of the cross, I would just encourage you to pray a simple prayer. And it would sound something like this. Father, I know I've lived my life away from you. I want the power that you talk about here. I I want my emotions to be healed as you talk about here. I want you to invade my soul with your Holy Spirit. In order to do that, Lord, I know that I need to turn from the old life. I need to close the door. Uh, trying to live my life my way and it hasn't been working. And yet I know I see the value in what it is to have this life in Christ. And I want Christ to be living in me. So as you turn from the old life and you give your life to him, you let the weight of your life down on Jesus. I guarantee you on the basis of his word and on the testimony of countless people that he will do it that he will come into your heart, that he will begin to set up housekeeping, that he will begin to rule and reign in your life and you'll be, things will begin to shift and change and you're not even conscious of it because he's not telling you you need to clean the house before you let him in. He's saying, come as you are. Allow him to do the work that only he can do. As you do that, your life will be changed forever. Guaranteed. Again, Uh, the love of God being poured out, as we, as the church, church being not the building, but Christians, the the called out ones, the set apart ones, that's what that word means in the original language. As we uh, embrace these truths that Paul is putting forth here in Ephesians chapter three, as he prays for the people at Ephesus, and as we, by way of application, apply that to our lives, we see that there is no greater place to live than with Christ at home in our hearts. Yielding him, yielding to him as we go through, as he, as he identifies things, as he moves the furniture around us, sometimes he upsets us. There's this great value in not treating him like a three-day guest. Allowing him to not just be a guest, but to actually take up residence inside yielding to his work, yielding to his touch, yielding to his voice as he speaks to us, especially as he speaks to us from his word. My prayer is that he's spoken to you from his word this morning. And as we wrap up here, I want to pray and then we're going to worship the Lord. So let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for this powerful section in Ephesians, Lord, that that you give us this just this vital instruction on what it is to have Christ in us as we as we walk, to understand that we being in Christ now can allow Christ to be in us in such measure that our lives are forever forever changed. Lord, it's only through the work of the cross we know that any of this can be accomplished. It's only by your grace that we can even stand. So I pray, Father, for myself, I pray for each person within the sound of my voice that you would just flood us with your presence, that your forgiveness, that your grace would wash over us, that we would see that there's nothing too big for you to forgive. There's no wound too deep for you to heal. And that Lord, as we yield to you, that we can have peace in our lives, peace in our hearts in the middle of tough circumstances. Lord, we just give ourselves afresh to you now. We pray that that power would be ours in abundance. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you and keep you and give you a great day. Let's worship.